I was driving down the Hende the other day uh, from a great coffee shop in Sherwood Park. Um, though they haven't sponsored me yet, if you have a chance, go check out Gratitude Coffee in Sherwood Park. You won't regret it. But as I was driving, something hit me. Not, not literally, but something hit me. I was smiling. It's something common that everybody does every day, absolutely. But today was different. I noticed my smile. It wasn't a grin that faded back into a straight-faced analysis of everything in the back of my mind. No, it was a full grin smile. And as I sat there, I realized it was actually the first time in a while things felt all right. Things were going as I wanted, going as I wanted them to. I had just finished a lovely coffee from the Netherlands. I had laughed with good friends, and I'd watched the bravest toddler you ever did see pretend to be a Walmart greeter to everybody in the shop. <laughs> the sun was out, and I was simply loving where I was at. It was a good day. Metrics. Defined simply as the science of measuring. It's not something we're used to consciously thinking about every day. But this time of year, it's something that it grabs us, it holds us tight, it is something that is on our minds. Was this a moment of smile, the result of a, a good moment, or the result of a good year? Was this something that I had enjoyed, or did I finally take time to pause and remember what this year had been? Many of us right now are in the midst of just that, reflecting, analyzing, thinking about what's in store this next year and what was in store this past year. It's quite common for all of us at milestone dates to stop, to pause, to breathe, and to think, what even happened this year? What even went on? Was it a good year? Was it a bad year? Who did I help? Who did I hurt? What were my goals? We sit back and think about our faithfulness to this past year, and we think about the next year coming. We think about what a better year might be. And often this better year is defined by how many books we've read, or maybe at least pretended to read on Goodreads. How many times we were sick, but we didn't take a sick day, we toughed it out. How many times we did or we didn't fight with our spouse or significant other. And the gravy on top, did we make it through the Bible in a year? Who's to say? But what if the metrics that we use in our everyday life don't give us the right data we need to decide if it was a good year? And a good year by whose standards? By yours? By God's? By society's? What if the smile I had been pondering was a glimpse of the momentary rather than the pain I endured this last year? Ultimately, what if the metrics we are using give us a false sense of the data that we're analyzing? It's New Year's Eve, after all. We're coming up to the end of the year, and we have a chance to do it all over again. And it often starts with having the right goals and the right metrics. And so my question to all of us, myself included, is this. What are the metrics that are going to help you decide if this next year was a good one or it wasn't a good one? And so as we turn to scripture this morning, I would love if we held that in the palm of our hand. If we'd be willing to ask, 
does Jesus have goals for us this next year? And what are the metrics that he wants us to use to analyze those goals? So if you have your Bible with you this morning, our passage today is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. But we're going to read right now slightly around that. We're going to read uh, starting in chapter 4 and verse 23 and going all the way till chapter 5 and verse 16. Um, And it's not tradition always, but if you would be able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you uh, for the chance to pause and to think and to reflect, the chance to hear from you again today. Father, we ask that as we spend time in your word this morning, that you would become greater, that my words would become less, and that, Spirit, you would be speaking to each of us. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Why did Jesus come to earth? We just celebrated the birth of Jesus in the last week. But have you ever pondered to stop, why did Jesus come to earth? To save me, to forgive me, to die on the cross? Absolutely. Yes and amen. But have you ever wondered why this passage that we just read might not talk about that? You see, at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, and at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has gone around, he's been healing, he's been teaching, everybody has been coming to him. 
And so as he sits down with the disciples and starts to teach them, why would that not be the first thing off his lips? Why would it not be that I came for this reason? I think it's because though our allegiance to Jesus starts at the cross, it never stops at the cross. You surely cannot stop at the cross, but you have to start there. And so what I've been reminded of as I've been pondering this passage probably for the last six months is there's a tension in this theological conversation. There are two very important aspects that we have to consider, and we have to hold them in proper tension. And if we don't, things will get confusing and start to fall apart. But we have to hold these two things in proper tension. They are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Or, said differently, right belief and right doing. And if we don't hold these things in proper tension and we focus too heavily on the right belief and not on the right doing or the right doing and not on the right belief, then we'll ultimately be out of balance. Because in Christian belief, your orthodoxy, what you believe, has to lead to your orthopraxy, what you do. And what you do has to lead to what you believe. There has to be a coherence there. We're all listening to some kind of gospel today. We're all pledging our allegiance to something. For some, it might be the gospel of blessed are those who are self-confident because they actually rule the world. Or blessed are the positive thinkers because they don't need anybody's comfort. Or blessed are the impure pleasure seekers because they have a great time. Whatever that gospel you believe might be, James Smith reminds us that you are what you love. What you love will demand your allegiance, and whoever has your allegiance has your belief. What's your goal? Where are your metrics? There's your heart and your allegiance. And so maybe the question shouldn't be, what will it take to have a good year this next year? Maybe our question should take a step back and simply be, what if being a follower of Jesus was more about following Jesus and less about knowing the right things? And so we start here today at Jesus' Beatitudes looking for a picture. What could this next year be? What could it mean to live a life aligned with God? And we have to pause here before we start our journey towards the goal Because if we don't have a big picture of where the goal is, we won't have any idea if we've made it close to the goal. Our metrics have to align with our goal. And we stop here and think, well, Jesus just blessed a lot of people. Maybe it's a roadmap. I'm sorry, it's not a roadmap. And and maybe we think it's a who's in and who's out list. But then we stop and remember, well, Jesus here is speaking to the disciples, so it might not be that. I hope today to help all of us, myself included, see that Jesus is painting a really big picture for us to stare at, something we call the kingdom. And within this really big picture, when we stare at it long enough, there's actually metrics to help us understand this big picture. This is what your life would look like if you were to be a disciple of Jesus, is our ultimate question. This is what allegiance looks like today. And though we're in Matthew, um, today we're actually going to be in Luke leading up to the Easter season. Um, We'll be in Luke until Easter Sunday. And we're finishing this three-year journey that we've been on to get to Luke, and we're going to start in chapter 16 and make our way right to the end. 
But regardless of which gospel we're reading from, it seems as if the general consensus is that prior to this time in Jesus' ministry, he was teaching and proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is near, that there's something dawning upon us to be a part of. And I sort of picture the disciples nagging Jesus, like, where, where are we going? What are we doing? How do we get there? And so on and so on. And so finally, Jesus speaks up at this point in Matthew, and he says, I've heard your nagging, so here's the answer. <laughs> Jesus, like a good teacher, Jesus is there, and he is starting to define what this picture we call life is. Jesus is going through what we call the Beatitudes. And as uh, scholar R.T. France would say, he'd say, the Beatitudes call on those who would be God's people to stand out as, a, as different from those around them and promise them that those who do so will not ultimately be the losers. Or as another author, Scott McKnight, would add, in the Beatitudes, the good life, the life that leads to blessing and to flourishing is the life lived by constantly, looking constantly to God for both approval and sustenance. And so as we dive into this big chunk, the question, I guess, is where do we start? And if you've ever read the Bible, usually a good place is to start with something that's been repeated. It usually is an author's key that there's an important thing happening. And so we look here at this passage and we see Jesus says one word nine times in nine statements. And so it's pretty important to Jesus. The word blessed. Or your Bible might say happy. Regardless, it comes from this Greek word makarios which is simply defined as being blessed or happy. So our English translations did wonderful. And this is probably a good place to start because the question has to be, what does it mean to be blessed? If our goal is to have a good year, we'd hope that we're blessed by doing it. But what does that mean? This is something that has been probably debated for centuries. And we're not going to end the debate here. It's probably going to be debated for another century. But I want us to think about it in this way as a type of word picture. When you hear the word happy, what do you, what do you think of? What comes to mind? For myself, I think of the word anticipation. It makes me think of excitement. It makes me feel a certain way. And so it's kind of hard to describe because it's a feeling word. And the reason maybe it kind of construes what Jesus is saying is because we can't feel our way to Jesus. Jesus doesn't make us feel happy all the time. As one author said, the happiness of the Beatitudes is not about feeling good, but about being good. And being good is then defined by Jesus and shaped by one's relationship with God through him. You see, we can't feel our way into becoming more like Jesus. We can't feel our way into becoming a better year. Again, as another author, Eugene Peterson, once said, he said in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is then expressed as worship. And so since it's not about feeling a certain way, maybe, could it be about what's going on around us that makes us blessed? Well, if you look really closely at the Beatitudes, you'd notice there's not much good going on in these people's lives that are being blessed. 
They're poor. They're persecuted. They are meek. They are mourning, and so on and so on. And I don't know about you, but these aren't really my type of Goodyear ideals. Rather, the one common thing I can see in this whole thread is this, that a blessed person is someone who, because of a heart for God, they have developed a way of life that promotes everything God taught since the beginning and therefore is promised and enjoys God's favor. These people are blessed here because God has asked something of them and they've been unashamedly able to do it. The result of God, the result of following God is their blessing. But we often turn that around and say, God bless me so I can do this. But here we see that to have a good year, a blessed year, it's actually reversed. The first thing we see is that allegiance to Jesus, following Jesus, is found when we pattern our life around what God is looking for. And therefore, the blessing comes by nature. As the psalmist would put it, we, when we walk in this way, are the ones who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but rather our delight is in the law of the Lord. When your delight is in and your metrics follow the law of the Lord, there is obedience. We are following the way of ancient Israel, who this was written to. We are following continually in the way of Jesus the reason at first the Beatitudes might be challenging to comprehend, to grasp, to understand would be maybe because they're hard to do, sure. But it's often because we try to figure out the how before we figure out the why. And if we stop and figure out the why, then I think the how becomes a lot easier. And so for the remainder of our time, I'd like to break down the Beatitudes into three sections that I borrowed from uh, another author, and, and though there's hundreds of different ways to break them down, I think the way that we're going to look at them today help us to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus this year. Throughout history, there have been hundreds of different ways that we've broken down the Beatitudes, and none of them are necessarily wrong. But today, I'd like to look at three markers of the kingdom. There's those who are humble, there's those who pursue justice and righteousness, and there's those who create peace. These three markers, I think, suggest today what Jesus is getting at when he says, do you need metrics to follow me? Do you need to be able to look at a glance to see if you're making good progress? So if you still have your Bibles, we're going to read verse 3 to 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 to 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Poor in spirit, meekness, mourning. Jesus starts with probably three categories of people that I can happily say I'll never be, and it's a, still a good year. I never could be those things in a year, and it is a great year. But Jesus starts with them. A good life, a good life. But as we consider these first three, we have to set aside our personal dislikes for these words. Meek, mourning, poor. And we have to look at them maybe out of the what comes from that. And I really like what 
our first category is those who are humble. Looking at these through a more palatable word of humility. As author Scott McKnight once said, he said, each beatitude is a reversal of cultural values. The self-dependent or the wealthy is at odds with the economy of the kingdom. And so we must not fear the immediate pain of these words, but rather look to the calling that comes out of these words. For the sake of time, let's simply take the first one, poor in spirit, which I think many of us have a preconceived idea of when you hear those words, poor in spirit, myself included. When I hear the phrase, I often picture someone begging on the side of the road, something we're starting to see more and more and more in Edmonton today. People living in a shelter, an encampment of unhoused individuals. And I and probably many of you here today think of that kind of poor when we hear poor in spirit. And maybe more importantly, we hear that and we, we think God is going to take pity on them so they're in the kingdom and uh, that's that. We maybe even pray for that. We maybe even pray for that. Yet after I work through that word picture and come to that conclusion, I simply am left wondering, is that it? Is God's pity so great that it's going to move mountains in, in our circles and, and that being financially destitute is the marker of the kingdom? I'd maybe encourage us to do something slightly different here. I'd encourage us to look at this slightly different. That kingdom life then could be, could be different. Jesus is rather describing an economically poor person, absolutely. A physically impoverished person or an oppressed person who not only recognizes her or his need, but then they also trust God for redemption. The poor in spirit love God enough to trust God. They love themselves aright and they love others enough to form alliances of hope, compassion, and justice. What we're going to see here in the first grouping of three in chapter five, verse three to five, is this, that someone whose life is marked by the pursuit of humility is someone who realizes that there are injustices happening to them and around them. They can't afford food. They can't afford the right clothes, the newest or maybe even the oldest technology. They have a friend or themselves are being bullied for being a certain race or believing a certain religion. They are looked down on for having a physical or mental handicap. And yet, though these injustices are happening to them and around them, they don't just pass on by, but rather do something to aid someone experiencing that injustice in spite of the injustice going on in their own life. A person of humility knows how to look for those that others don't. They, and, and I love this phrase, they form alliances of hope, compassion, and justice. As preacher Charles Spurgeon famously once said, we have plenty of people nowadays who could not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. Samson killed a lion and yet still said nothing about it. You see, the spirit finds modesty so rare that he takes care to record it. So my brothers, say much of what the Lord has done for you and say little of what you have done for the Lord. You see, it's not always about meeting someone's needs in this grandiose fashion. 
Though don't get me wrong, people have needs that need to be met. But sometimes it's about taking the first step before the needs and doing that more diligently. Listening, giving a hug, caring about who that person is rather than the situation they're in. As my professor at Briarcrest always would say to me, so I say to you, if it's important to you, it's important to me. What if that was our heart posture this year? We have a life that is pictured here in verse 3 to 5 when we take our understanding of blessing, that God will bless me so I can do this, and reverse it and say, I will do this for others, and along the way, God will bless me. It's a reversal of thinking. When we, in spite of our own mourning, in spite of our own being poor, are in spite of our own meekness, look to take the posture of one who's willing to think about others, to direct needs of others. That's when the kingdom of shine, the, the kingdom shines forth. When our orthodoxy leads to our orthopraxy, when the forming of alliances of hope, compassion, and justice lead to the advancing of God's kingdom, that is when we've met the first marker. What if that was our posture this year, that the person on your left and on your right was one that you would form alliances with for hope, compassion? That is humility. And so moving forward, let us consider the next set of three, verses six to eight. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What is justice? What is justice? In simple terms, justice is getting what you deserve, a fair result for your actions. Someone hits you, so you hit them. Someone talks smack about you, so you talk smack about them. Someone robs you, so you rob them. We are in a culture of retaliation, naturally. The world tells us often that if I am wronged, I am to wrong others. Yet this, my friends, is not the picture Jesus paints as a marker towards the life of the kingdom. Instead, Jesus would say really controversial things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Being a people of righteousness is caring more about what God wants to do than what the world deems as right and wrong. In the Old Testament, it was often tied to fulfilling the law and prophets, doing the right things. And though Jesus does not come to abolish the law and prophets, he does point us towards a lifestyle that does to others as they would have done to themselves. And because they have experienced God's merciful love, empathize and show compassion to others. Or as another author in the New Testament would put it, we have loved simply because God first loved us. Theologian N.T. Wright says this in his, in his famous book, Surprised by Hope. He says, the church is not simply a religious body looking for a safe place to do its own thing within a wider political and social world. The church, rather, is neither more nor less than a people who bear witness by their very existence, and in particular, their holiness and their unity, that Jesus is the world's true Lord. Bear witness that Jesus is 
the world's true Lord. And we do that through our aligning with Jesus, that the world sees what we do and who we are. And so I'll ask it again. Has this been a good year? What's it going to take to make this next year a better one? What will our lives look like if we are to be a disciple of Jesus? What metrics are we seeing here that are going to point us to Jesus? Being a person of justice and righteousness must not be, must not be about doing what you want. Rather, it must be about doing to people what Jesus would do to people and letting that be the just result for their actions. Personal feelings set aside. And so finally, we get to our last metric, those who create peace. And rather than stand up here and share about that, I thought it would be fun to watch a short video from the great guys at the Bible Project um, about this metric. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus's birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others. Like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. 
Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. We've been in this series, Beauty in the Broken, for the past four weeks. And I think the beauty in the broken has led us to this. What beauty is Jesus asking you, despite the brokenness around you, to make? This has always been what it's led to. A God who, despite the brokenness of society, the fracturing of relationships, the destruction of following his way, brings Jesus brings his one and only son into the world through the beauty of two colliding worlds, the spiritual and the natural, to make whole the wall of our lives by giving us a totally new wall to even consider, the kingdom of God, whose metrics and goals are rather surprising when you consider becoming a citizen. This ties, I think, everything so beautifully together. Because in this idea of shalom is what Jesus is getting at in all of the attitude, the Beatitudes, but also what the gospel writers are getting at in the Advent season of Jesus' anticipated arriving. That there's a new kingdom, a new way of living, a new king. A society that cares about the wholeness of the person or the people around us. Is it important that the person beside you has experienced the salvation of Jesus? Absolutely. It's actually foundational because it's out of that that the Spirit empowers us every single day. But true shalom from God also asks if we care about their physical health, their financial situation, their mental well-being, their joy, their stress, a lot of things that make up someone's wholeness. It's sometimes more about simply going to heaven. It's about caring about the wholeness of those around you so that you can be a part of bringing heaven to earth. That, in my opinion, is the beauty in the brokenness, the joy of Advent, what launches us into this next year, our anticipation towards a new way of living, but one that starts at the manger, journeys to the cross, and ends up spreading out wholeness to one another. That we would be a people who are humble, who are pursuing justice and righteousness, and those who create peace. That's what I think Jesus is calling us into in this next year. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to do your will. And it's hard to be a people who do your will. But I ask, Lord, that today would be the start of the family of Ellerslie 
caring about the wholeness of one another. That we would be a people who bring shalom from our home into other people's homes this year. That our metrics would align with your metrics and that our goals would align with your goals. So teach us, Father, we ask today and the rest of this year to be people who are full of humility, to be people who seek justice and righteousness for those around them, and for be, to be people who seek for peace, who create peace today. Amen.